0: Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr Jacinta Delhaze
1: and Dr Daniel Kanema. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies.
0: Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make.
1: Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you for joining us again. So Jacinta, what do we have in store today?
0: Yes, hello. Today, we are talking about aliens. Aliens. (laughs) Aliens, and how we're using big radio telescopes in South Africa to search for uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh,
1: And how exactly are we doing that?
0: Well, recently at a conference, I managed to speak with Dr. Griffin Foster from the University of Oxford. And he is part of a team called Breakthrough Listen, which will be using the Meerkat Telescope in South Africa to start SETI. SETI being? The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. All right.
1: So, Jacinta, you're a radio astronomer. Why do we want to use Meerkat in radio astronomy?
0: Yeah, so I guess traditionally astronomy has been done with optical telescopes, and all of us are familiar with optical light. It's the type of light that we can see with our eyes. But there are many different types of light, and this is called the electromagnetic spectrum. And one of these types of light is is radio waves. Um, now, it's a common misconception that radio waves are a type of sound instead of a type of light, and that's because we ha- all have radios, which we listen to, right? But radio stations transmit their signals as radio waves, which are a type of light, which are pick- picked up by your antenna on your radio instrument, which converts the light into sound waves, and that's what you can hear but radio waves are a type of light and they can come from space as well as being generated here on the Earth. Um And the really useful things about radio waves is that they're very long wavelength, which means that they can travel straight through dust. And there's a lot of dust up there in space, in galaxies, in the Milky Way, so that blocks our view of much of the universe But if we look at this universe at radio wavelengths, then we can see straight through the dust and see what's hiding behind it. And that's why we want to do radio astronomy.
1: So the Breakthrough Listen project is obviously continuing these misconceptions because they're actually (laughs) looking at light.
0: True, true. Okay. (laughs) Good to know. Okay.
1: (laughs) So South Africa currently has one of the best radio telescopes in the world. Can you tell us a little bit more about Meerkat?
0: Right, so Meerkat is a big new radio telescope that's in the Karoo in South Africa. It was launched in about July 2018 and it's currently the world's most powerful functioning radio telescope. So a radio telescope kind of looks like a satellite dish. It's made of these antenna that look like satellite dishes. Meerkat has 64 of these And they're spread out over about eight kilometers in the Karoo region. And this forms an array of antenna, or an interferometer, we call it. This makes a very powerful telescope. And the further you can spread these dishes apart, the better your angular resolution. And this means you can see things that are smaller. And, of course, things that are further away in space appear smaller to us. So this is helping us to see very distant objects in the galaxy and in the universe.
1: And Meerkat, of course, is a a precursor telescope to an even larger telescope, which is coming.
0: Yeah, that's right. Even though Meerkat itself is currently the most powerful radio telescope, it's only approximately 1% to 3% the size of a new radio telescope that will be built in the future called the Square Kilometre Array, or SKA for short. This will also be built um, partially in the Karoo and the other part in Western Australia And this is going to be a really phenomenal scientific instrument, which is probably going to revolutionize our understanding of the universe. But this will be starting to be built soon and will be hopefully functional the first phase in about 2025. So we've got some time until SKA is up and running to use Meerkat, which itself is going to produce some really amazing discoveries.
1: I'm looking forward to hearing more about the exciting discoveries Meerkat is hopefully going to make. And one of those discoveries could be Laugh?
0: Could be, yeah. So there's this project called uh, Breakthrough Listen, and it's essentially searching for signals of intelligent alien life elsewhere in the galaxy using Meerkat.
1: Sounds fascinating. So are they uh, piggybacking on current observations, or are we specifically looking for aliens?
0: Right, exactly. So it's sort of like a timeshare situation where these telescopes are going to be doing their science observations for other projects, and then Breakthrough Listen can essentially piggyback on onto these. So it just uses the data that's being taken for these other purposes, and then it can be analysed in a different way to commensally search for aliens at, at the same time as doing other science. And when I say aliens, of course, what I actually mean is extraterrestrial intelligence, So, scientifically speaking, there's no evidence for this existing yet, Um, and that's why we're doing a scientific search for this with Meerkat. What do you think, Dan?
1: I think that there is a high likelihood of there being life elsewhere. If it's transmitting in the radio and it's near enough for us to see, I think that's probably unlikely.
0: Yeah, so I spoke to, um, as I said before, Dr. Griffin Foster from the University of Oxford recently, um, at a conference and we had a long discussion about these, these issues. How do we reconcile aliens in pop culture with science, and what are the chances of actually detecting a signal um, from uh, an alien civilization with a telescope like MeerKat? And how exactly do you do that, and what kind of signal do you even look for? So Griffin gave some amazing answers, and I think we can we can have a listen. Yeah, let's do that. Today we have Dr. Griffin Foster talking to us. Hello Griffin, tell us who you are.
2: Hello, I'm Griffin Foster. I'm a researcher at the University of Oxford.
0: And what are you doing here in South Africa at the moment?
2: Right now I'm at the bursary conference, the student SAREO bursary conference. And I, uh, this morning I gave a talk on what Breakthrough Listen is, the idea of how, how we do SETI, um, why we search for life, and um, the, specifically how Breakthrough Listen on Meerkat will work. Um, basically we will be doing this uh, large commensal uh, backend, which will run anytime Mirka is doing scientific observations.
0: So I watched your talk at the conference this morning and I really enjoyed it. You started by talking about single-celled organisms and uh, their evolution to what we know as life now.
2: A few years ago, I sat down and when I first started working through Breakthrough Listen, started thinking about well, what do we know about life? And I realized my knowledge goes back to basically when I was in high school and took biology. I didn't know what the current research was, and so I I spent a bit of time uh, reading about this, and I was surprised to learn, actually, that, of course, you know, biologists have spent the past few decades figuring this stuff out to fantastic detail about how um, kind of one of the main theories is that, you know, these hydrothermal vent structures formed that or fairly long lasting long lasting enough to allow for life to form by basically creating these kind of cavities which had potentials between them and kind of acted like a, a cell before there were cells and over time these structures kind of became detached from the vents and as time went on they they formed these basic forms of life you know these prokaryotic cells from there planet earth chugged along for quite a long time it took kind of this this kind of special moment it's a very rare moment in the story of life where these prokaryotic cells at one point in time decided to engulf another one, a few maybe, and instead of destroying it, kind of incorporated in kind of the beginning of uh, eukaryotic life in what's made uh, multicellular organisms possible. And this moment happened and, you know, these, um, it engulfed, uh, chlorophyll so it could do, uh, it could do photosynthesis or engulfed something that was like this prototypical mitochondria so it could do energy production and and kind of the complex life shot off from there and from there it was kind of a slow progress but there was kind of a, a steady progress to multicellular life and then you know these various forms of life until here we are now this uh this kind of life that can form um, abstract thoughts and build technology and really allowing us to uh to then ask well, why can't there be other life out there very similar to us? And not maybe not physically, but kind of the, the same ability to think beyond uh, basic survival, kind of more complex, form societies and, and uh, advance our knowledge.
0: So basically one cell ate another cell and then evolution continued leading to life as we know it today. And then that then leads to the idea that there could be other life out there in the universe and that we could search for it. So, throughout the history of humanity, what has been the search for extraterrestrial intelligence?
2: Just to start, you said it ate the cell, but that's just it. Fundamentally, it didn't eat the cell. It incorporated it. That's, the, that's a big leap, right? Before, it would always eat it. Now, it didn't. But I get your point. Very enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, humanity, um, at some point, when we first realized there are planets, I think it was this general thought that well we're on a planet there's another planet out there maybe there's life and it's quite interesting to think that for much of humanity's existence probably people thought oh yeah it's reasonable that there's something else out there it's only fairly recently that we've looked and gone oh yeah there's nothing obviously there and maybe we're alone i'm not sure if we you know at what point that happened um but I think people have always been curious to figure out, like, can we communicate? And there's some famous stories, um, apocryphal stories, likely about uh, people digging uh, big trenches and filling them with uh, oil and or kerosene and lighting them on fire in the hopes of like signaling nearby planets to say hello. We're there. <laughs> um, and building like you know crops um or fields of crops in weird shapes geometric shapes to to show off to some other nearby planet go oh yeah you, we have a idea of geometry but kind of you know i'm not sure these are great stories I, i'm not sure how many of them are real but the kind of the first attempt to um to look for for life beyond earth in kind of a systematic scientific way happened started happening about a 100 years ago and um the invention of radio made people realize that you can transmit information across great distances at great speeds, and um, that led people to think, well, why couldn't we transmit to other planets, and why couldn't they transmit to us? This has happened in kind of the early early in the last century, but it was really the development of kind of the radio telescope um, post World War II, where um, where we developed a lot of radar technology and started understanding. Um, how noise works, how information is carried, and how we would utilize that. And people started thinking more, more kind of seriously about um, how one would send send a signal. The first papers were written in the late 50s and early 60s. And the first paper on Radio SETI happened in 1959. And just the idea of kind of fundamentally, and to this day, in fact, the, the most basic signal we could think if we wanted to... um Make ourselves known and what we presume an advanced civilization would want to make themselves known would be just a very narrow band carrier wave. And this is just, um, just like a r- typical radio station has a carrier wave with information on the side, but you kind of tune into that carrier. And so we, you would think, oh, maybe, maybe an advanced civilization would do the same. It's a great way to transmit at great distances. Say you have a given energy budget. And by concentrating it down to a very narrow frequency, you you can transmit that energy at greater distance, and so that's kind of the to this day, in fact, the kind of the standard, the bread and butter study observation that we do is to look for these narrow signals. Being incredibly narrow, we can we can notice any sort of uh, drifting in frequency, and there's a drift in frequency because we're on Earth, we're spinning around on the Earth which is spinning around the sun, which is spinning around its own part of the galaxy. So we're in a very particular reference frame, um, which as astronomers, we know all about, we have to correct for oftentimes when we um, do observation pulsars or anything that's kind of variable in time. And so we have a very particular reference frame. And so if we saw a signal that was kind of drifting, you know, Doppler redshift or blue shifting, we would have a sense that that must be because it's in a different reference frame. And we would never really expect um, a signal from an advanced uh, civilization to be in the same reference frame, because they're spinning around their own star, around their own bit of the galaxy, on their own planet. So the, back in the late 50s, That's when the idea started and we still stick to it. And kind of, it is a kind of a, what's the dumbest thing we can do? And that was what was thought first. Um, of course, there's a ton of other ideas people have. Um, and there's a lot of philosophy into, you know, what's the best way to search? Should we even search? What does it mean to look for life? But as kind of, if we, if we want to do something practical, this is what we tend to do. And we kind of expand from there and try to, try to look for other signals as we kind of think them up, but that's what we stick to. Also, in the late 50s, early 60s, another type of, um, SETI was thought of. And instead of doing radio, you'd do optical SETI, we call it. And that's because back in the early 60s, uh, lasers were developed. It turns out lasers are a very good way to transmit information great distances because you've basically made a coherent beam that you're transmitting out and it's very good at if you know where you want to send the signal to uh, you can point your laser at it and shoot at it and so the idea is we we could do the same as you know maybe maybe some advanced civilization is shooting shining lasers at us and that's um and we could find that also within by using our optical telescopes
0: so there's been this whole history of seti why are we doing it now
2: you know. I've been doing astronomy for maybe a decade now, maybe more. I did my degree in astronomy and astrophysics. It wasn't that long ago when I was doing my degree and taking my course, there was kind of this unknown about whether there's exoplanets or not. Everyone kind of assumed there was, but there wasn't really much evidence other than a few particular examples. And over this last decade, last 20 years, there's been this boom, and we now know that there's planets everywhere. Most star systems have a planet. If not, Many planets, and the fact that that we know this now is kind of an exciting thing. This idea that, of course, there's so many planets. I mean, it seems so obvious now, but we now have this evidence. And the obvious question next is, well, where those planet? What's on those planets? Do they have atmospheres? Do they also have life? And people are are kind of moving from finding planets to now figuring out what what these planets are made up of. And this is a really uh, great moment because at the same time, this kind of brings forward the idea of doing SETI again. I think over the past few decades, it's been, SETI has been very quiet. People continue to do research in it, but I think this is this kind of discovery of exoplanets has really boosted the interest in SETI again. What's happened about three years ago, this kind of interest built to a really phenomenal event is that um, the Breakthrough Initiatives, which is this uh, organization founded by um, some uh, fairly interested people, but also fairly rich people, who wanted to fund science to look for life beyond Earth in a number of ways. And the initial project is called Breakthrough Listen. And Breakthrough Listen is a project. It's funded over 10 years. It's been going for three years now to use radio telescopes to, to look for signal, signatures of advanced life, um, on other planets.
0: So what is the Breakthrough Project working on at the moment?
2: Right. Um, When we started three years ago, we we kind of came up with some foundational goals. Broadly, we want to survey, if not all nearby stars, a significant sample of them. And we picked a number of, we went ambitious, we we want to do a million nearby stars. We also want to survey the galactic plane and particularly the galactic center. You know, if you were an advanced civilization like us, you would build telescopes and you would realize the galactic center is very interesting and you'd want to point telescopes there. And so it'd be a great place to, to put a signal. If you're if you were a very advanced civilization who thought they wanted to be known, um, there's this idea of a civilization might create a beacon, a lighthouse to shine basically. And this, this beacon would be directed, it could be directed or it could be directed in many locations or it could be kind of in all directions. And if you're going to create a beacon, you might put in places people would look, and the galactic center would be a great spot to do it because it's fantastically interesting. And so we're not just looking there, but kind of on all of the other planets, we'd be interested in finding a beacon. And then um, the third point is we're interested in fi- looking at uh, nearby galaxies. And for an extremely advanced civilization with kind of unlimited energy budget, they might be trying to kind of let other galaxies, nearby galaxies, be known. That reaches more into the realm of science fiction about how this would work, because it's beyond kind of our understanding of how energy and technology would work, but it's potential. You know, this is exciting. Who knows what we'll find? And so for the past three years, we've been using the Green Bank Telescope in um, the United States, which is a 100-meter steerable uh, Gregorian offset dish. It's a fantastic instrument um, that that's in the northern hemisphere. And then we use the Parkes Telescope in, in Australia. And these are great dishes, but they can only point at one thing at a time. And so it takes a long time, especially if we want to observe a million stars. It's going to take a really long time. So over the past few years, we've observed a few thousand stars. But we need to go bigger because it's going to take a long time to get a million. So that's where Meerkat comes in. Meerkat's this fantastic array. Where we have 64 dishes that are quite small compared to these really large dishes. They're 13 and a half meters, um, which means they have a large field of view. They roughly have a one degree field of view, but it's actually quite bigger if you want to take into account other structures. Um, what this means is that we can we can look at multiple places within this field of view at once, and so we build what's called a digital beam former. And there's 64 of these dishes and add it all up, they're just as sensitive. They're in fact more sensitive than the Parkes telescope. They're about as sensitive as the Green Bank telescope. And so by combining them all together, we have this big field of view where we can see dozens of stars at once. And then we can point, we can form these little beams um, in multiple directions. And so it's almost like having dozens of massive telescopes at once. And this is going to allow us to observe a million stars over about three to five years, kind of the run of this initial um, the initial large survey projects of Meerkat.
0: You're taking the, the Breakthrough Listen project from having looked at a few thousand stars to, to looking at a million stars. You must generate an enormous amount of data. What are you going to do with this data and how are you going to process it?
2: That's a fantastic challenge we have right now. <laughs> um, we're working on that right now. The Meerkat system, because it's so much data coming through, we have to do it in real time. We basically can't save all the data. We have to choose what to keep. And so we're basically taking our um, processing pipeline, which typically we, we do this thing where we channelize the um, the data down to very narrow bands. Um, so the number we pick is roughly a. One hertz. And that's narrow compared to other radio astronomy. Uh, most radio astronomy, you're interested in tens of kilohertz, hundreds of kilohertz, maybe a megahertz band or more. The reason we pick this is because we expect these, these kind of artificial signals to be incredibly narrow band. That's another way that we'd indicate that something was, was artificial. You know, there's this natural, um, limit to how narrow, natural, physical, um, processes are in the universe. And we, we know this fairly well. Masers are kind of the narrowest band things, and even those are tens of kilohertz. A maser is a, um, well, a natural maser. It's is different than a laser or a maser that we make, but a natural maser is a, um, is a cloud, basically, of elements within uh, molecules within uh, the universe that actually kind of coherently transmit They're quite interesting objects. That they can they can form a coherent um, transmission. So once once we do this narrow channelization, we then do the search where we look in to see if the reference frame is different. Different. A big challenge we have is the fact that humans make a ton of artificial signals. We call this radio frequency interference or RFI. And so we're kind of we have this problem where we're we're looking for. Artificial signals in other artificial signals. And turns out the vast majority of the things we, we detect are man-made things. Um, and so we spend most of our time trying to get rid of those. We, we have good ways to do that, but still we're, we're flooded with them. So we're, we're always trying to, um, find new, new solutions. And in fact, there's a limited number of us. And so we, we have kind of within our mandate, not only to, um, to find uh to seek out uh advanced civilizations or signals from advanced civilizations but make this as open as possible because we know that we uh, there's not enough of us and this is really a um a challenge beyond us. I mean it's really an interesting um challenge that that I think most people in the world can understand and could be excited about. And given that we have limited time we want to make it possible for other people to uh to help on this. And so not only is all our data open, we're very open about what we search for, how we do it. Uh, we make uh, we, we've created tutorials. Uh, and our, our code is open, and we strongly encourage interested parties to uh, to join in if they if they um, they feel like they can contribute or want to contribute. You know, we're we're all um, aware of pop culture. We all are interested in it. We watch films we read books and, um, aliens get into, uh, into pop culture quite often. And we think about this and, you know, a lot of times there it's fairly nefarious or there's some like conspiracy theories. And so really an important aspect to us is that we, we make sure everything we do is open. Everything we do is, you know, our codes open source. We're very public about our discoveries. Um, we want to, make it yeah very clear that uh, everything we do is 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 not nefarious
0: so you do want people to be involved in in your search for for aliens quote unquote um, what about the general public can they get involved as well
2: yeah absolutely um, we are we're we're trying to figure out ways for everyone to be involved um, not just uh, you know, skilled engineers and programmers and uh, astronomers but yeah the general public. Um, we've decided um, to start a project using Zooniverse. And Zooniverse is this great project that's been running for, I, I'm not even sure how long, but well over a decade now. And it's a citizen science project. It started as a way to classify radio galaxies. And the idea would be that a, a bunch of scientists would upload images of radio galaxies that they just didn't have time to classify. But they've built a tutorial and a guide for how to do it. and. They sent it out into the world and they built a really nice interface and it was enormously successful. And over the years, um, the Zooniverse has expanded to a ton of other scientific projects. Um, uh, there's been a project to, uh, to decode scraps of papyrus that people found in a rubbish bin from many centuries ago. There's like a project to, uh, to encode, uh, weather logs from, eighteen hundreds, I mean not just astronomy, but all these other really interesting things. And they've built a really nice framework um to allow us to uh to create this these projects that are very accessible to mainly the ideas uh school children, but just also high schoolers and general interested parties. And we've gone and built this little program where where people will be able to go through all our signals and, and help us at least describe what they are. As far as we know, all these signals are, are human made, but, um, but they're really hard to figure out what they are and, and kind of filter through them and get rid of them. And so we, we need help to kind of classify them. And this is kind of the entry point in how to, how we build a model that will filter them out. We're, we're beta testing this Zooniverse project right now. And hopefully in the next uh, few months, we'll, we'll have the official announcement and, We'll get a lot of people to help um, help us. Basically, the next step is really to, to build these models. That allows us to kind of filter out all this human-made radio, radio frequency interference and try to get to the, uh, the astronomical signals.
0: All right, so astronomers and the public and everyone are going to be searching for these radio signals from alien civilizations. But what actually makes us think that they want to talk to us? What makes us think that they are putting out signals for us to find?
2: <laughs> well, for me, a, a bit of optimism, a bit of uh, hope for humanity, and hope for um, humanity that stretches off to other advanced civilizations. You know, you're absolutely right. There's a, you can you can take a pessimistic approach and think, well, you know, maybe they wouldn't transmit signals. Um, I'd like to believe that our own interest in this means that we uh, we're curious about the universe, and any other civilization would also be curious, and at some point decide, well, we've um, advanced technology sufficiently, we've kind of have control of energy in a way that we're comfortable with, and that it might be reasonable to, to say something more, just try and say hello to the rest of the universe and, and kind of make themselves aware or make other civilizations aware of themselves. Yeah, I think that's a, it's an optimistic uh, a dream, I guess. And, uh, I, and I'm hopeful about that. I think that's a reasonable thing because uh, I'm hopeful for humanity.
0: So, are we are we transmitting any signals? Are we trying to communicate with aliens?
2: Well, indirectly we are. You know, this radio frequency interference I'm talking about of is us transmitting. This is the um, radios. This is mobile data. This is um, radar systems. You know, we have a um, the Earth has a radio leakage signature. We call it of just all the technology that's leaking out around. Turns out this signature is actually um, because it's not directed and it's not coherent in, um, in a particular kind of focus, it, the leakage kind of fades fairly quickly. And so we might be able to detect a similar leakage from nearby planets, but really distant planets, it would be really hard. And so similarly, uh, and a civilization would have a hard time seeing our leakage. But we do have large radar systems. We have this large planetary radar system at Arecibo in uh, Puerto Rico in the United States, which is used to map, um, objects near earth objects and and things within our solar system and that uses uh the radar system is we transmit at very very high power to map these out but um a similar system could uh basically be used to communicate at very large distances and in fact this is what we typically use as a measure an indication of kind of how far we could detect a signal
0: and there were concerted efforts to to put out a signal with arecibo a few years wasn't there
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Many years ago, in fact. Um, but there have been in the past. And there's been other radar systems where people have transmitted on to nearby stars. And so there's been these little moments. Um, no, no long-term kind of signal. And the signals are fairly basic, um, kind of, uh, encoding little bits of mathematics into it and, and figures. Uh, but, uh, we, we haven't really, um, done this in a, in a long time or in a, a serious effort.
0: Meerkat's just the beginning for large radio telescopes in in South Africa. Of course, we've got coming up the International Square Kilometre Array, much of which will be built here in South Africa. This will be an even bigger instrument. Are you, is there plans to perform SETI with with the SKA?
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, Meerkat is a fantastic instrument and it's going to um, run for as long as it can and we're going to get amazing science out. But it'll also be the, the core of the SK, the SK mid-frequency array. It won't just end when, when Meerkat ends. Hopefully, Meerkat doesn't end for a very long time. Um, but it will continue with the SK.
0: You recently went to the Meerkat site in the Karoo. Uh, what were you doing there?
2: Yeah, um, we installed our very first equipment there, um, which has been very successful. And we'll be installing more equipment over the coming months. You know, we we announced officially in October that we'll be doing this um, collaboration with, with Meerkat. Of course, it's been planning for a very long time. And part of this planning has been to invest in the HCD program, the Human Capital Development Program that Soreo has been running for a long time now. And it's this fantastic program. In fact, um, not too long ago, I was part of that program. I, I did my first uh, research fellowship here um, after I did my PhD. And um, I can't be more happy, more than happy to, uh, to be back. In fact, I, there's an incredible excitement of, of uh, in South Africa about doing radio astronomy probably the best place in the world to be doing radio astronomy at this moment um and i think the interest from Soreo to uh to have us here has been great and um we're excited to you know we're we're based throughout the world and we want a presence here specifically and we uh we hope in the the near future we we have people that we're not just are not just contributing on a volunteering basis but we'll be um kind of financially supporting them to to expand um, interest in SETI in South Africa. And there's really been a, a lot of great um, feedback and great support from, from South Africa. And uh, I, I think it's going to continue.
0: Well, it all sounds very, very exciting. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Griffin.
2: Thank you so much, Jacinta. Great.
1: F- fascinating stuff. Um, I mean, I've always been skeptical, like... I don't I really don't expect us to be able to detect anything I mean the the scale of the universe is is so large that the the chances of something being near enough and in the right developmental stage to be transmitting has always made me and I think a lot of scientists probably a little disinterested in the actual search for extraterrestrial intelligence but it's great to see that people are, are doing it and taking it seriously.
0: Yeah, and I guess if you don't look, you you definitely 100% are not going to find, right? So, so somebody's got to be looking. And I think it's worthwhile doing it, especially if you can do it at the same time as doing other science. So, you're not losing telescope time. You're not losing data products. You're just gaining, and why not?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely the point here. Like, it's, it's kind of hard to... Uh, to motivate for spending time and telescope time and money on on the search when the likelihood of finding something is so low. But if you can just piggyback on on amazing science that's already happening and possibly discover something incredibly amazing, then why not?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's high risk, high reward. I mean, if you actually found a signal that's potentially from an extraterrestrial civilization, that's... Game changing.
1: Well, in this case, it's pretty low risk, right? I mean, they're they're using observations which are already happening.
0: Right, exactly. So I think all in all, this is it's just awesome that it's that it's really happening and that it's happening in a really rigorous scientific way, and that it's happening right here in South Africa.
1: Well, I mean I hope that aliens don't take offense. <laughs> What? Independence Day? They're all going to come kill us.
0: Oh, right. Sorry. (laughs) It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. (laughs) It's a classic. (laughs) And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah.
1: You can follow us at thecosmicsavannah.com. That's Savannah, S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H, where we will have links related to today's episode.
0: Special thanks to Dr. Griffin Foster for speaking with us.
1: Thanks to Mark Allnut for the music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, and Lana Sarai for the graphic design to create the podcast art. This episode was created with the support of the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory.
0: We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah.
1: Next time on The Cosmic Savannah.
0: They were wondering, like, what is this bright star, like, that shines in the radio? What is it? And um, later on, with better instruments, with better telescopes, they were able to see that, okay, no, actually, there's more to it.